0: Good morning, welcome to ABC. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, Man, we had an amazing celebration last Sunday um, at Easter. I hope you made it. Um, If not, jump on in with us here. We're gonna get back into the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we have a two-part, two-week series here on the Beatitudes that Pastor Jake is gonna preach us through. Um, I'm really excited about it. I think you'll really enjoy just leaning in to the words of Jesus as he begins to teach um, through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so that's coming up in just a minute. Before we get there, I want to let you know, uh, ladies, that there is a women's conference here at ABC called Consider the Flowers, and it's on May 7th. It's going to be a fantastic time of fellowship and some food. Um, I heard they're doing meat. Uh, they don't want to do tea anymore, they just want meat. So we're having a women's event. Um, it starts at 4 p.m. in the afternoon and goes all the way till 8. Um cost $25. You can sign up on our website, abcchurch.org slash women. And uh, we're bringing in a guest speaker. Um, it's gonna be a fantastic event, so you don't want to miss it. And if you're coming, uh, those of you that are that are parents of, of girls, uh, moms of girls in particular, we're doing a girls version of the event earlier in the morning at 10:30. And so uh, you can bring your girls in the morning, and then the ladies' event starts at 4 p.m. Um, Saturday afternoon, May 7th, um, we would love for you to sign up and take advantage of that. It's going to be a really great time um, that weekend. Uh, Next Saturday, though, before that, um, just this coming Saturday, is a Creek Cleanup Day. Um, It's a Servatascadero day where we're going to join um, a group of uh, people from the city that are volunteering to clean up the creek and pick up some trash, and so we want to just be a light that way as a church and be a good presence in our community. So at 9 a.m. on Saturday, um, we're starting the creek thing. But you got to come up about 15 minutes early, so come at 8.45, um, right there to Sunken Gardens. You can just show right up at 8.45, sign up there. They'll give you all the materials. They'll give you gloves. They'll give you the picker-upper things and the vests and all that. Um, We did it last year. I did it with my kids as a family. It was a great time um, just to even teach them how to serve. And then we're finishing at 11 o'clock with pizza. So there's going to be some lunch uh, afterward if you're able to make it down for that. If you're interested and want some more information, you can always call the church office and and, uh, we'll get you more info. Um, One more thing I wanna mention before we jump into the message this morning is we've been talking about um, trying to help our brothers and sisters, the churches over in Eastern Europe, particularly in the Ukraine, and provide some tangible resources um, for those that are really hurting right now as there are so many refugees coming out of Ukraine Um, with uh, the Russian attack there. And so um, we started this Ukraine Relief Fund. You might've heard us talk about it. And um, we had raised over $13,000 in that fund as of a couple weeks ago. Um, So thank you for those of you that contributed. But I wanted to let you know, with uh, those funds, we've been able so far to invest $2,500 into the deaf community in Romania as they receive deaf refugees from the Ukraine to just love them and serve them well with the needs that they have. In addition, um, we've invested another $2,500 with one of our ministry partners um, in Austria, Corey and Christiana Miller. Um, they packed up a, a couple of vans full of supplies and they've been able to help supply a um, refugee camp in Poland. And that's been a fantastic privilege just to partner with them. And finally, we, we've invested $5,000 um, into a, um, church planting organization called Communitas. We have partnership with Communitas through Brad and Hannah Smith. And so uh, Communitas has a church plant in Poland, in Romania and in the Ukraine and they're um, delivering those funds directly to their church plants that are on the ground doing humanitarian aid. And so we're able to um, really funnel those resources right to the church and we're really thrilled to be able to do that. So thank you for your generosity. I um, wanted to give you a little report on where those funds went. Um, And then we've also got a a few of our own people here from ABC that are going over to Ukraine. Um, So we've been able to kind of help support those trips and those investments as well as they go to um, really literally be the boots on the ground and be the hands and feet of Jesus as they serve some of these um, refugee camps and centers there um, with supplies. And so thanks again for being a part of that. Um, With that, I'd like to um, hand it over to Jake and we'll jump right into the message this morning. Well, hello. Thank you for tuning in today from wherever you're at.
1: Um, Last week was Easter, and we had an incredible time celebrating, and I'm really glad that you're tuning in today. We're moving into the next section of our series, Through the Book of Matthew, uh, a section we're going to call Lessons from a Mountaintop, because it's the Sermon on the Mount where we see some of the most prolific teachings in the history of humanity from the mouth of Jesus. And I get to kick us off with Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And as we were looking over the last week or so with me and Jeff and Gerald, I I was going to do verses one through 12, which is all of what we call the Beatitudes. And as I had it kind of prepped out and worked out, um, we looked at it and said, this just looks like a lot of material, but we didn't really want to cut it. So what we're going to do, what we don't usually do, I'm going to break it into two uh, parts. And part one is going to be today. And then next week, I'm going to preach again on verses seven through 12. Um, so that's how it's gonna go this week and next week. Um, Here's what I'm hoping for over these next two weeks. Uh, Last Sunday being Easter, we were crowded up into the Itascuador High School Stadium with 1,500 people or so, and it was fun, and it was exciting and inspiring, and we celebrated in a really big, loud, profound way the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and that he's the Lord of the world. But as we're up there and we're singing and clapping, I'm in that moment finding myself balancing joy with cynicism or realism, I might call it, and thinking there's no way that all of these people really actually believe in the resurrected Jesus. I don't mean that in a judgmental way because I'm wondering that of myself too. There's no way that all of these people really actually have, have structured their lives in a way that they would need to structure their lives if they really believed that sort of thing. Like I honestly believe that or I doubt that there are 1500 people in our community who really actually live as if the resurrected Jesus is the all out unconditional Lord of their life with nothing held back from him. And then I'm I'm thinking, is that true of me? Is my life truly characterized by a proper response to the death and resurrection of Jesus? And I would say, yeah, I mean, I try. But in so many ways, I still struggle so much with actually integrating that, or actually integrating myself into the story of Easter. In many ways, it still feels like last week is like an accessory to a life that I'm otherwise kind of figuring out on my own with or without the reality of the gospel. And the story of Easter is more like subscript to the more central plot line of everything else that I have going on. I think a lot of people probably feel that way maybe you're someone who feels and can see a good deal of obvious brokenness in your life and so maybe you're just doing due diligence trying to find all possible remedies and you're seeing if church might be the medication that works but you're not really counting on it or maybe just the opposite you're someone who doesn't feel much obvious clear brokenness in your life at all and you seem to be optimizing just fine without jesus but going to church on Easter for some reason is still culturally important to you, so you were here. Or for a lot of us, and I think this really is a lot of our church, you earnestly believe in the crucified and the resurrected Jesus, and you believe in what he did, that he paid the highest price for you to restore you to a right relationship with God and to buy you back from sin and you want your life to be dominated by the gospel, you would say that that is the most important thing about you, the thing on which every other part of your life rests, but still you struggle to fill in so many of those gaps between what you say and what you celebrated in a big way last week with how your life actually works. So you'd say, I believe that. I believe Jesus died and he rose again, but why am I still so angry? I believe that, but why do I still struggle with lust? Why do I still feel so much bitterness? Why do I still drink more than I know is healthy or right? Why do I still feel most connected to people when I'm gossiping about other people? Why am I still so obsessed with money and stuff? Why am I still so anxious about everything? So what I'm hoping for is this over these few weeks, that you feel along with me a holy sense of discontentment. I think it is healthy and holy. To feel the sense of discontentment, dissatisfaction with your ability to properly respond to the resurrection of Jesus. And to actually make that belief real in your life and your practice. No matter where you're at on that spectrum of faith. Whether last week was your first time at church since Christmas. And you're still not convinced that corporate worship is a meaningful part of life. But for some reason you're still interested in sniffing it out again or whether you're here every week, multiple times a week, but you're just as disillusioned by your own lack of progress as I often am. I'm hoping that right now you feel the disconnect between the victory of Easter and the daily struggle to just be a decent human. I hope you're hungry for more and better. Because in the text today, way before his death and his resurrection, we see Jesus open his mouth from a mountaintop and he starts teaching a way of life that answers that question. What would my life look like if I really believed in the resurrected Jesus? Let's read the text from Matthew 5, 1 through 6. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We'll finish the rest next week, but for this week, let's look at these Uh, really four statements, these four blessed statements and descriptors of the blessed person. I've heard that every person will attempt to answer at least these three questions in life. Who am I? Who or what is God? And what is the good life? For our purposes, what is the blessed life? It's really the same question. I mean, if you look here or here or here, you'll see different answers to that question, what is what is blessedness? What does it mean to be blessed? Check the hashtag on Instagram, and you'll see, I mean, a, a wide range, um, but a lot of it is different from what Jesus is about to prescribe to us. I mean, at the worst of the hashtag of blessed, it's like the most obnoxious, you know? It's like a stack of cash in a Bentley or something, and that's hashtag blessed. But even at best, maybe it's something like Um, like a picture of your kids that you love or a picture of your best friends that you've been blessed with, hashtag blessed. But it's interesting that in this list, Jesus doesn't necessarily put anything that we would naturally associate with blessing or with goodness. In these verses that we call the Beatitudes, Jesus begins casting new vision for just how good the good life can be, just how blessed the blessed life can be. But it's completely upside down from everything we or his original audience would have assumed. And spoiler alert, in the paradigm of Jesus, it is completely possible that you would be poor, sad, hungry, and blessed all at the same time. Let's talk about that word blessed and then we'll get to these four statements. Um, There are two versions of the word blessed that we see throughout scripture and like a lot of words in the New Testament, there's often a pairing um, of what it was in Greek and what it would have been in Hebrew or where it came from in Hebrew. So the first is the word blessed that comes from the Greek word eulageo and the Hebrew word baraka. So both of those work together to mean this. This is a version that says, you're asking God for some blessing or favor. So it's like asking him um, for for the thing that you're hoping for, for the miracle that you're praying for. So this is seen in the worship leaders in the Old Testament. It's seen in our prayers when we say, Lord, bless the sick. Lord, bless my mom and dad. Bless my my kid as they go to school today. So on and so forth. It's seen in Chance the Rapper. He says, the praises go up, the blessings come down. That's that kind of blessing. This is not the word used in the Beatitudes. But this is a word all throughout Scripture. But the second is from the Greek word makarios and the Hebrew word asir. So Raymond Brown explains this really well, says that recognizing an existing state of happiness or good fortune, that is this blessedness. So it's to affirm the quality of spirituality that's already present. Friedrich Hauck says that this form refers overwhelmingly to the distinctive religious joy, which accrues to man from his share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. This is the word used in the Beatitudes. And this distinction is really important and we'll come back to it as we close today. Let's go to this first statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? There's a really special place in God's heart throughout scripture and throughout history for the financially poor um, and those poor in materials. But this has a different nuance to it. It is poverty, but it's poverty of spirit. Really, hearkening back to Isaiah 66, two kind of heart. This is the one to whom I will look, God says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Or think of David in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite spirit, God will not despise. D.A. Carson says this is to acknowledge your own, what he calls, spiritual bankruptcy. So this is a a kind of humility, a kind of brokenness, realizing your lowly state before a holy God. To say there is nothing in me that's valuable enough to commend myself to God. So I'm blessed when I realize I have nothing to give. I'm coming to the kingdom knowing I have nothing to give, nothing to offer. So I'm just pounding at the door, pleading with the king to let me in. It's this tone of humility. And if you think about that, it's important because it will be very hard for someone who isn't humble in spirit, who isn't broken in spirit or poor in spirit. It'll be really hard for that person to want to do anything else that Jesus tells them to do. Anything else he's about to say about a number of things, about anger and lust and divorce and money, like he's gonna really lean into some things. If you're not coming to him poor in spirit, ready to receive in humility, it's gonna be really hard for you wanna do anything. He or Paul or Peter or James or John are going to tell them to do. It's the spirit of that famous line from D.T. Niles where he said as a preacher, he said, "'I'm just a beggar telling other beggars "'where to find bread. That's what we do when we evangelize, when we teach. So with every blessed statement of these four blessed statements, there's kind of an answer or a result to that. For this one, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that beautiful? For all the things that they don't have, the poor in spirit, look at what they get. For you and me, for all of the faithfulness that you know you lack, for all the emotional fortitude that you don't have, As you realize your own weakness and your humility and you acknowledge that, look at what you get. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Number two says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Not just the normal losses of life, but also mourning over the sin and the brokenness of ourselves and our world. So to grieve injustice as it happens everywhere, and especially grieving indifference to the gospel, to to grieve those things, to mourn about those things, that's a blessed way to be, a blessed way to live. Interesting to note, there's two perverted sides of our society regarding grief and loss and mourning and suffering. One is an industry dedicated to avoiding it, and the other is an industry dedicated to being entertained by it. But the way of Jesus is not to avoid it or to exploit it, but it's to embrace it for the depth of spiritual formation that awaits there. That's the point, and that's the invitation. Blessed are those who mourn. There is a depth of spiritual formation and growth and character development. That's why James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because there's some growth that happens there that doesn't happen anywhere else. Old Testament poets and prophets called this sort of season the desert or the valley. Jesus called it the wilderness, and he experienced that. St. John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul. He explores the question that psalmists and every Christian asks at some point. It's this question, oh Lord, why do you hide your face from me? It just makes me think, do we have a paradigm for this kind of relation, this kind of living with God? living with a God who sometimes feels like he's hiding from you, like he's being silent, like he's hard to find in the grief and in the loss. It's hard to see what he's doing or where he is, which leads me to ask, okay, so when are you blessed? And what role do circumstances play, if any? Because there's, I mean if you if you break life down into and this is really reductive and overly simple but if there's kind of a time when life is easy and a time when life is hard. And when I say easy, I think a lot of people will say that's when life feels good, okay? I think our definition of the word good is way too narrow, um, but I think when we say that, we probably mean it's easy. Like There's little to no resistance b- between what we want, and there's little to no obstacle. So life is easy, life is hard. When are you blessed in that mix? Are you, are you only blessed when life is easy, or is it possible that you may be blessed when life is hard, when it's challenging? Because anybody can feel blessed when life is easy or good by common definition. But I really think only followers of Jesus have the emotional resource and a resilience to believe that they are truly blessed when life is hard. To say ultimately, you are not just blessed when you're healed of the sickness. You're blessed when you're walking through the sickness. You're blessed when you're waiting for a miracle that hasn't happened yet. You're blessed when you're praying for redemption that hasn't come yet. To not just say, I'm blessed when God feels present and life is as it should be, but say the truth about where you're at, okay? Say the sickness is back. We're wrestling with anxiety. Money is tight. The kids are a mixed bag. And then say, I am blessed in that and because of that. And this isn't just like a self-help mind trick, this isn't you lying to yourself, this is just you being honest and acknowledging that at every moment of your life, you will be in the middle of some unfinished emotional process okay, at all moments of your life, you will be in the middle of some unfinished emotional process. Something will be unresolved at every moment. And if you're waiting until the thing is resolved to feel blessed, to experience blessing, then you're going to be waiting for the rest of your life. See, at best, there's always gonna be a few loose ends and a few lingering hopes. And at worst, it's nothing but loose ends in your life, and it feels like you're losing hope. So this is just you realizing that if you wait until every aspect of your life matches what Instagram says is blessed, then you will miss a deep life of daily blessedness that's available to you. So I would say blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you in the waiting. Blessed are you when the thing is unresolved. Blessed are you when you feel like you're not making it financially. Blessed are you when you're realizing your failure as a friend and as a parent and as a spouse. Because if we're honest, these are at least half the moments that your life is made of. If life is easy and hard at different times, this has to be at least half the moments your life is made of. If you think about it, the thing that you wish was different, that's kind of a preferred future that you have in mind. The I thought I'd be there by now or we'd have that by now. I wish I was healed of this by now. I wish my kids were here by now. I wish I was married by now. I wish my marriage was stronger by now. As soon as I get this, then I'll be blank. Or as soon as this finally happens, then I'll do blank. Realize that you'll be basing how you navigate today off of a make-believe life of tomorrow. That, that doesn't exist. That's a make-believe, pretend life. The man, I wish this was the case. Or someday, somehow, this will be the case. That doesn't exist. These moments must be half of your life, these moments where the thing is unresolved, or you're waiting. And that means that you have endless opportunities to honestly mourn what you wish was different. All I'm saying is this, don't miss the depth of spiritual formation that awaits you in these moments because you're waiting until life is finally easy in order to be blessed. If you wait until you feel blessed to feel blessed, you will never feel blessed. is kind of what I'm saying, okay, Dr. Seuss. But really, if you wait until you feel blessed to actually be and receive blessing, then it's never gonna happen. You're gonna be waiting for the rest of your life. I would just say, just go ahead and mourn. Go ahead and just mourn for whatever it is that you're in the middle of right now, whatever it is you're waiting for. And the answer to this is that they should be comforted. He says, they shall be comforted, those who mourn. And I think Jesus sheds more light on this here in a beautiful way, kind of answering the the problem. The reason that we try to avoid or hurry through mourning, I think it's because we think that comfort comes from the resolution of our issues. But that's not the whole truth. That's part of the truth. There is some comfort in resolution. But remember this, comfort doesn't come from the absence of problems, but from the presence of God. Comfort doesn't come from the absence of problems, but from the presence of God. Because you know what you're going to get after this problem is resolved? You're going to get a new problem. Yay, congrats. You know, spoiler alert. So if you're constantly waiting for the absence of problems from your life before you receive and experience blessing and blessedness, it's just not going to happen. Blessed are those who mourn. Go ahead and just mourn. Number three, he says, blessed are the meek. There's a word we don't use often, or if we do, I think we probably have negative connotations to it, probably not positive ones. What is meekness? Douglas O'Donnell says it is someone who is gentle, humble, unassuming, and willing to serve. I love the spin Aristotle put on it. He said that it's the virtue of acting halfway between recklessness on one side and cowardice on the other. So it's the golden mean between two extremes. And like I said, Greek and Hebrew are always kind of working together and they both shed some new light on it. So in Hebrew, it has a sentiment of obedience and accepting God's guidance. And then the Greek tone says that it's an ethical median way that will assist in working out problems, disputes, and disagreements and put those together. And there's actually a really beautiful picture of what meekness is. The question for me is, is it compatible with every iteration of Jesus that we see? Like, do we see this in all the, the forms and all the scenes and the snapshots of Jesus? Because in a, in a manger as a baby, for sure, like that's a meek, meek and mild, right? But what about like mean and wild Jesus? What about the table-flipping, temple-cleansing Jesus? Is that a meek Jesus as well? We get this important sense in which the word meek doesn't at all imply lack of power, but rather power under control. Power and strength focused in the right way at the right time. And I think Kenneth Bailey says it so well here, that the one who is truly meek is the one who becomes angry on the right grounds against the right person in the right manner at the right moment and for the right length of time. What does Jesus say about the meek? He says, they shall inherit the earth which probably corrects the assumption of a lot of his listeners, because he think what kind of person would listeners think would inherit the earth, would inherit the land? Probably someone strong and dignified and loud, probably warriors and kings, but not according to Jesus. He says it's the meek. It's the meek, the ones who have this temperate sort of balanced disposition, that they're angry about exactly the right things in exactly the right fair way. The meek shall inherit the earth. And then we see number four, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Notice he doesn't say blessed are the righteous. This is so interesting to me. He doesn't say blessed are the righteous, but he says blessed are those who want to be. Isn't that freeing? Like, for that, that feels so freeing to me. Because if I say blessed are the righteous, I'm like, I look in the mirror and I'm like, well, shoot, there goes that, right? Like, hopeless. But blessed are those who want to be. Well, I, can, I can want to be. I know how to want to be better. I know how to want righteousness. He's saying, blessed are not those who have arrived or think they have arrived, but those who continue at whatever cost in their journey toward a more perfect righteousness, toward more holiness, toward more conformity to the image of Christ. That's who the blessed are. And that comes from humility. There's this cool sense in which all these beatitudes kind of stack on each other. That comes from somebody who's poor in spirit, someone who's meek before the Lord because nobody gets into the kingdom unless they realize their unrighteousness before God. You don't get hungry for righteousness unless you humbly realize your own unrighteousness, right? Nobody squeezes through the eye of the needle unless they shed that baggage, that excess weight of pride and self-accomplishment and self-sufficiency. There's an interesting note too that the terms used for righteousness, they don't really refer to an absolute ideal ethical norm. But it's a term that denotes a relationship. Rudolf Boltman highlights this in a really cool way, saying that your righteousness is the verdict of the forum to which you are accountable. Really, so you're righteous in relationship to whom is the question. Who decides that? In whose eyes, in whose relational context are you righteous? The answer is with God. In your relationship with God, He has made you righteous. And what's the result for the righteous, for those who hunger and thirst for righteous? They shall be satisfied. Jesus uses what's called the divine passive. It makes you ask, well, who or what will satisfy them? God is the one who will satisfy them. They shall be satisfied by God, with God, in God. In fact, hunger and thirst for righteousness can only be satisfied in God. That's the beauty of where he leads here with his thought process. So... We're here the week after Easter. All that to say, these four statements, we're here the week after Easter, and I'm just I'm thinking back to last Sunday with this sense of dissatisfaction. And it's not anybody, it's, it's inward. It's me looking at myself saying, okay, do I actually believe this? Do I actually believe that Jesus was crucified on my behalf for my sin and that he rose from the dead? And then I look at my life and I say, am I living the kind of life that I would have to live if I believed something like that? In order to believe something like that, like you have to make some serious, like you're not just doing some minor tweaks on your life, you're flipping it upside down and deconstructing it and reconstructing it back so it'll be totally oriented around the person and the values of Jesus. I'm asking, okay, do I really believe in the resurrected Jesus or do I just like big crowds and singing fun songs and clapping and having a big celebration, but do I really, really wanna follow the Lord Jesus? And and it's my hope and my prayer that wherever you're at on that map of faith, that spectrum, that you have this holy sense of discontentment in your own life. This sense of, am I responding to that as I ought to be responding to that? My hope as we come to the most prolific sequence of teachings in history, it's just this, that you would let Jesus define your idea of the good life. Let Jesus define your idea of the good life. That's that's where we start, in the teachings of Jesus, because he's saying, blessed is, blessed is, blessed are, blessed are. He's redefining any idea you might have of blessing, anything you might scroll on, on hashtag blessed, he's going to redefine that, flip it on its head, and he's going to show us just how good the good life can be, just how blessed the blessed life can be. And like I said, I want to land back on the distinction between these two, uh, these two you know, origins of the word blessed. So one is eulogio in Greek and one is makarios. And again, Jesus is using makarios because it's so important as we close to know that he's describing what he sees as the already current state of the blessed person. Not because of anything they did to deserve the blessed status, but because God has already decided and gifted it to them. Makarios means that we don't come to the Beatitudes in a purely aspirational way, trying to figure out a formula of cause and effect that will earn us blessing. It's not like we're coming and saying, okay, if we do this or if we become this, then we get this. But we come simply to a description of who God says we already are as we exist in Christ. We come to his description of who God says we already are. It's a description that Paul would later call the new creation or a citizen of heaven of which Jesus himself is the prototype and he's the ultimate model. He is the source of this blessedness, it's where we get our blessedness from as we are in Christ, and he's the sustainer of this blessed life. He's the author and the perfecter, the beginner and the finisher of a life of blessedness. So to live out the Beatitudes, to come to this passage, is not to come say, all right, here's the list of goals and check marks, I'm gonna try my best to be these things. It's to come to description. That is literally from Jesus that we see it. It's through Jesus that we live it, and it's to Jesus, all for his glory and his renown. So the practical takeaway is just this. I just wanna say really simply, for you to find the blessing in the life that you have, Find the blessing in the life that you have, and I'm not just saying to think of things that you're grateful for, although that's a really great practice. I'm saying to think through these first four descriptors, these blessed statements, think through these first four descriptors and ask, what do I have right now? What season am I in right now? What is my life right now? Not the life that I wish I had, but the life that I do have. Are you poor in spirit? feeling broken and humbled before the Lord? Are you mourning, waiting for resolution on the thing you wish was different? Are you meek? Are you hungry for righteousness, striving to be better? Jesus says you are blessed, so be blessed. Let me pray. Father, I wanna thank you for your word and thank you for this snapshot into the teachings of Jesus. Jesus, thank you for uh, your courage to get out. I know you're God, but you were also 100% human at that time. And, and you stood up in front of everybody. And you started teaching things that were so revolutionary. You didn't hold back anything. And you flipped people's assumptions on their heads and and started teaching a new way to live, a new way to be human, really. Father, I'm so thankful for that, because the truth is that we all come to you with the same deep-seated soul-level hunger. Like, none of us are exactly quite where we want to be or where we wish we were. Whether we're fairly disconnected from church, but we, we know that something's missing and we can feel it, so we're going to give it another go. Or whether we're here multiple times a week, every week, but still, Father, I'm, I'm so disillusioned so often by my own lack of progress, discouraged by my, still my, my sinful cravings and my attachment to my flesh and to the world. There's a holy sense of discontentment and hunger that we all feel. And so we come to the words of Jesus, hungry and humble, ready to receive. God, do we need help. We just desperately need help. We need you to teach us a new way, an old way. I mean, it's what you've been teaching all along, but Lord, bring us back to this. Bring us back to this kind of life, the the truly good life, the blessed life, life to the full, as you call it. So Jesus, help expand our minds and our hearts to step more fully into what you call the good life, the blessed life. Would it bring honor to your name? Would you be blessed because of it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.